6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Mister completes his session entitled, The Fall of Man. Space has properties. It has an electrical property called permittivity. It has permeability. It has magnet magnetic both is a dielectric constant and it has a magnetic constant. There is an intrinsic impedance in space. Any radio amateur who's been trying to tune an antenna knows that space itself has an intrinsic impedance. And uh, these things are all now well understood. Of course, the, uh, the velocity of light, as we've talked about at creation, was probably uh, 2.54 times 10 to the 10th times its present velocity. It's currently uh, 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 also at the speed of gravity, which is a whole other thing to get into. Let's talk a little bit about zero-point energy. If the temperature of an empty container is lowered to absolute zero, there still remains a residual amount of thermal energy that cannot by any means be removed. That's why they call it the zero-point energy. An absolute vacuum is now known to be a vast reservoir of seething energy out of which particles are being formed and annihilated constantly. It's sort of like the foam at the, at the base of a waterfall. See, one of the questions is, why doesn't an electron that's spinning around its nucleus of an atom radiate its energy away and by losing that energy spiral into the nucleus? It's a question. The answer is, it picks up energy from the background zero-point energy and therefore is sustained by it. And that's exactly what's suggested in 1 Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, incidentally. But let's keep moving here. Day one, let light be. Second day, the stretching out of space. The third day, we find land and vegetation. Now that's kind of exciting. So Erev and Boker on the third day leads to the land and vegetation. There's something else behind the text without getting into the land vegetation thing itself. Uh, you can get plenty of that from your biology books and so forth. But, and God said, Let, Behold, I've given you every herb-bearing seed, this is skimming down to verse 29 now, which is upon the face of all the earth, every tree in the, which is the fruit of the tree-yielding seed, and it goes on at the end of that chapter to the beginning of the next chapter. It says, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it goes on. Between these two verses, verse 29 of chapter 1 and verse 9 of chapter 2, is obviously uh, some uh, Hebrew text of a handful of verses, in which is encrypted the name of 25 trees that appear in the Bible. It's interesting that if you're using a computer, they discovered that these 25 trees are encrypted. Some very shortly, every second, using every second letter, every third letter, that forward or backward, whatever. But it's interesting that these trees are the trees that are mentioned elsewhere in the Scripture. They're all encrypted underneath the text that deals with 
uh, seed-bearing trees. What's relevant here isn't the fact these words happen to occur. What's relevant here is they're clustered under the text that has re relevance here. So it's an interesting form of authentication, that, as we talked about earlier. Let's skip on to the fourth day. It's sort of startling to realize that the sun is created in day four, the plants and vegetation in day three. That makes it pretty hard to explain these as geological eras, by the way. And it also indicates that maybe there's other sources of light before the sun, but let's not get into all that here. Erev and Boker, again, we have the sun, the planets, the stars, and all of that. There's much we could talk about here, but let's just pick verse 14 out of this series. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for what? For signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and He made the stars also. And the Erev and the Boker were the fourth day. As we look through a telescope, we see a number of galaxies. And there's a handful of these that are spiral galaxies. And I've put a few on the screen here. And by making distance measurements, we estimate that the one in the upper left is about two million light years away. Uh, the next one to the right of it is 18 million light years away. Light years are measurements of distance, by the way. It's how far light can travel in a year. Uh, a standard astronomical measurement of distance. The one in the lower left is uh, 32 million light years away. The next one, 65 million. And the one in the lower right, 106 million light years. Now what's interesting about these, you'll notice that these spiral arms of the galaxies are roughly, uh, they're all very similar. That poses an interesting question about galaxy twist. The galaxies that were furthest away had to release their light long before the closer galaxies, because the light had to go further away, so they had to start earlier. Therefore, the further galaxies did not have as much time to rotate and twist their arms. Thus, the closer galaxies should have the most twist. But we find that's not the case. If the speed of light was a million times faster in the past, that would account for them being so similar. Set that out as a suggestion. But let's get back to verse 14, because there's something else hidden under this one. God said, let their lights be in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and for years. This word for seasons is hamoyedim in the Hebrew, the appointed times. What's interesting, they've taken a computer and they've looked at the, the 78,000 letters in the book of Genesis, and the frequency of those letters in the Hebrew alphabet would imply that that word should just show up randomly, by accident, about five times in 78,000 letters. But what they discover is astonishing. As an equidistant letter sequence, it appears only once in the entire book of Genesis, and it's at an interval of 70, and it is centered on verse uh, Genesis 1.14. Now, why is this so significant? Well, first of all, by the way, the odds of this happening exactly this way is like one in 70 million. It's a, it, it statistically doesn't make sense unless it was deliberate. It turns out to any Jew, he knows that of the appointed times, there are 70 of them, 52 Sabbaths a year, plus seven additional Sabbaths per year. Many people don't realize that there's 
more than just the 52 Sabbaths. Seven days of Passover, including its related feast. When it says Passover, they're using it connotatively to include Feast of First Fruits and, and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, there's the Feast of Shavuot, there's the Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur, and uh, seven days of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And when you add those, uh, when you add up, there, it adds up to 70. There are 70 appointed times in, in, on the Hebrew calendar. And so it's fascinating to discover that the text itself echoes this, that the Hamoyadim uh, is encrypted underneath the text in an interval of 70, uh, once and only once, centered on that verse. Again, these are not, you can't build big cases on this except they're forms of authentication. You see evidence of a designer hovering over this text. Rabbi Hirsch said many years ago, the Jews' catechism is this calendar. What did he mean by that? Well, of course, we have the Feast of Israel. Uh, the, the, in the first month of the religious year, we have the Spring Feast, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits. Seven months later, you have the Fall Feasts in the, in the month of Tishri. Feast of Trumpets on the first of that, the Yom Kippur on the tenth of that month, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, on the fifteenth. And between these two groups, on the first and seventh, there's a very strange one, the Feast of Weeks, in which they used leavened bread, strangely enough. And each one of these feasts, we'll discover later as we get into this, are not only commemorative historically, they're also prophetic. The first three were fulfilled on Christ's first coming. The last three, apparently, will be fulfilled on His second coming. And there's a very interesting one between those two. But let's move on. On the fifth day, we have the sea animals and birds created. Yeah, again, this is so frustrating to go through this because each one of these subjects is elegantly uh, 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 illuminates the skill of the designer. Uh, you can take something as trivial as a bird's feather and you can spend a whole evening on discovering how skillfully that's designed. And to attribute that to happenstance or accident is nonsense. But we won't get into all that here. The real death of Darwinism comes uh, from lots of reasons, but not the least of which is microbiology. Advances in microbiology, namely the DNA and all that, have dealt the death blow. They put the final nails in Darwin's coffin in a sense. Because the DNA that we now discover is a three out of four error-correcting code. And we have time to develop that, but it's, it, it's just utterly absurd to attribute the elegance of that code to random chance. And when you design a computer, you've got to have the language and the machinery processing that language intimately coordinated. To ascribe either one or certainly together as randomness is absolute folly in, in logic. And uh, Darwinism cannot explain uh, the origin of life because it cannot explain the origin of information. There's another concept that's emerging called irreducible complexity. We're indebted to Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, where he illustrates this idea with a simple mousetrap. Here we have a mousetrap that has uh, five parts. It has a basic platform on which there's a hammer. That hammer is driven by a spring. It's held back by a holding bar that's tucked under a catch. All of us are familiar with a mousetrap. What's interesting, there are five parts here. Trying to make this simpler is pretty futile. It's, it's, uh, these five parts have to be there in some function or another. It's interesting that if you have only four of the five parts, you don't catch four-fifths as many mice, you catch zero. 
The point is there's a concept in design called irreducible complexity. It can't get simpler than this. That indicates it's designed. It can't happen by accident. And let's take a, a single-celled creature called a bacteria. It has a flagellum, a little tail that propels it through its fluid. And if you look at this carefully, all we're, going to, we're not going to get into all the other details. This is a single-celled animal, and we're going to just look at where the flagellum is connected to the creature. And we discover there are 40 parts to an electric motor. It doesn't wiggle, it spins. And it, it is an elegantly designed motor with 40 critical parts, any one of which missing it doesn't work. So this did not happen by chance. It evidences designs, highly skillful design. Then we get, of course, to the next day, we have animals, mammals, and, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Man, uh, created in day six. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Uh, most of us are victims of this nonsense promoted by our textbooks, and even in National Geographic and Scientific American publish these crazy things, the soul I, the, that we came from monkeys and that nonsense. When you get into this and study it with any depth at all, you'll discover something astonishing. Not only is this nonsense, it's deliberate fraud. The Heidelberg man was contrived from a single jawbone. The Nebraska man in 1922, Henry Osborne, did it from just one tooth. And they later discovered that it was from an extinct pig. The Piltown man you hear so much about. Charles Dawson developed this from the jawbone of a modern ape. It was deliberate fraud. We now know it was filed and treated with iron salts to look old. Uh, if you get to the Peking man in 1921, the evidence has disappeared, but it also bears evidence of an outright fraud. These are not people who made a discovery and were just misguided. These are people who deliberately contrived these things to be misleading. The Neanderthal man, found in the cave in the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf. At the International Congress of Zoology in 1958, they concluded that it was just simply an old man suffering from arthritis. The Java Man, 1922, an 1891 uh, skull cap, uh, a 50-foot femur thigh bone that was not, was not even near it, was distant from it, and they, the evidence was concealed. It was teeth of an orangutan. The thing that disturbs you about paleontology is it's littered with deliberate frauds, not just poor science, but deliberate frauds. So all this is still fine in the textbooks used in your schools to mislead our kids. In 120 years of searching, there have been no intermediate stages found to justify evolution. We could go on and on, but let's move on here. We get to day seven, and you'll notice there's no Erev and Boker. There is no discrete steps. God had finished his creation. He's, it's completed. That's the whole theme of day seven. Now our problem in the so-called day, how old is the universe in the days, it's clear that God intended us to understand that. And our problem is not Genesis 1. People talk about the word yom and what it might mean. That's silliness. It's Exodus 20 verse 11 where the creator of the universe with his own finger wrote it in stone. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. And he rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And incidentally, he didn't do that in Exodus 20, he did that in Genesis 1. So our problem isn't in, in, in grasping the six-day thing. It's clear God intended us to understand that he did it in six days. 
in days as we think of them. I won't quibble about 24-hour business, but clearly it's, it's a day-by-day -day thing. And the real mystery to those that really understand who God is, is why did he take six days? But in any case, that's what he chose to do, and he did. The field of thermodynamics has been really solidified in 125 years. It's been fully described. And the first law of, of thermodynamics is called the conservation of matter and energy. It asserts that matter and energy, they're equivalent to each other, uh, can neither be created nor destroyed under natural circumstances. And nowhere in the universe is matter being created or annihilated. All observed processes in the universe conserve matter or its equivalent energy. The corollary to this is natural processes cannot create energy. All of this is a result of a creation of the past. That's the implication of the first law. It's interesting, that's exactly what the scripture says in Genesis 2. We just In the seventh day, God ended his work. That's a thermodynamic statement. The works were finished from the foundation of the world in the book of Hebrews and so forth. All things that were therein, you preserve them all. Nehemiah 9, 6, and it's all through the scripture. Well, there's a second law of thermodynamics, and that's what we call the entropy laws. The second law, the bondage of decay. First law says there's no way to win. The second one says you can't even break even. What it really means is there's an arrow of time. It asserts that as time advances, the universe progresses from a state of order to a state of disorder. And we find that in our closets at home. Clean up the garage and see how long it lasts. Uh, uh, locker at school, what have you. There's always a trend towards randomness. And that's true of all processes. The uh, universe seems to run downhill to eventually a heat death when no temperature differences exist and therefore no energy is available for work. This means, looking back, that the universe had a beginning because uh, the total has been limited. And uh, there's a third law that no one talks about much in, except in uh, thermodynamics, and that's where every substance has a positive um, entropy, which may become zero at absolute zero, which means you can't get out of the game, but uh, we won't get into that here. Entropy in Scripture. They shall perish, thou shalt grow old as a garment, in Psalm 102. The earth will grow old like a garment, in Isaiah 51. Heaven and earth will pass away, Matthew 24. Now, is entropy going to be repealed? This is one reason a number of us believe that the entropy laws were introduced in Genesis 3. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of decay. And we believe that's an allusion to the entropy laws. And obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Heat always flows from hot bodies to cold bodies. If the universe was infinitely old, then the temperature throughout the universe would be uniform. It's obviously not, so therefore it's not infinitely old. That's a simple demonstration that the universe had a beginning. And is destined, by the way, for an ending. Scientists will talk about the Big Bang as a singularity that started all this, and it will ultimately reach the end of a uniform temperature, which they call the heat death. But there's finite boundaries when it began, and there is an end at which it will end. Now, as, as you can probably gather, this is kind of a frustrating exercise to go through six days, because we spend a full session on each one in our commentary in Genesis. We have a commentary in Genesis, which has 24 sessions for the entire book. 
And then Monday we go through the Big Bang models, the fabric of space, hyperdimensions, and all of that. And uh, Tuesday we have life and vegetation. We talk about the origin of life, thermodynamics, and entropy, and molecular chemistry. And the fourth day we have the stars and the planets. We refute the so-called nebular hypothesis. We talk about the anthropic principle and uh, the signs in the heavens and such. In the fifth day of the fish and fowl, we talk about the fallacy of evolution. It's obviously shredded very easily. And the evidences of design everywhere and biodiversity and its role. And the sixth day, we have, of course, the fallacies and frauds I've alluded to, but also the DNA and the role of information in life. And thus, out of that, the architecture of man. Not his physical architecture, his software architecture. And the seventh day, of course, anyone that thinks the seventh day issue is a simple one hasn't studied it. And there are clearly six steps of entry reduction to get to the seventh day. Then a repose is established on the universe. We'll talk about the Sabbath in prophecy, and that may surprise many Christians are confused on this point. That doesn't put us under the law, but there are some issues that might be quite uh, provocative. And the role of marriage in all of this. But let's uh, wrap this up with Genesis chapter 3, which is the seed plot of the entire Bible, where the Nachash, the shining one, presents to Eve the forbidden fruit, and she yields. We need to study that carefully to understand the methodology of deception. His first step was to suggest to Eve, yea, hath God said, to create doubt that that's really what God said. That's exactly what he'll do with each one of us. The first step in deception is to create doubt about what God really said. God means what he said and says what he means. And then from that, of course, the next step is denial. Ye shall not surely die, he suggests, and on they go. So from the fall of man, we have the God's declaration of war. God takes the initiative of the war against Satan, and he alludes to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's two seeds. The seed of the, uh, the woman becomes a, a messianic title of the deliverer, of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. But there's also a seed of a serpent that will make his day. And the key verses here in chapter 3 are verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said unto the serpent, or the Nachash, the shining one, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above all every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And there are the two seeds. The seed of the woman being the title of Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent being this leader that is yet to surface in world history. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, the entropy, the bondage of decay, we believe is introduced here. We've seen the, the, the order improve through the creation week and stabilize during the seventh day. But then we have this pivotal event called the fall of man in which God puts a curse on the creation. We need to understand that everything we know about the universe, we know from a post-curse universe. We know it only since the curse has been instituted. We have only glimpses or conjectures of what happened prior to the fall. You can't prove to me that Adam and Eve lived only in three dimensions. Uh, this is all a byproduct of the curse. And so, the effects of the fall. The entropy, I think, was introduced. The universe fractured. Maybe this is where we separated the, from the ten dimensions to the four that we can directly experience, separating the physical and the spiritual universe. If I can make a two-dimensional representation of a ten-dimensional universe, and God announces a curse and separates the six from the four, the four 
dimensions that we can experience being what we call the physical universe, that fracture may be a result of the curse. And there will be a time that, uh, see, the four-dimensional universe that we experience is a subset of a much larger reality, and we know that from empirical data. Redemption, by the way, God's plan of redemption involves more than man alone, because Isaiah twice and Revelation says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So there's more than just man involved in all this. The first act of religion is in Genesis 3, verse 7. The eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. That may mean far more than we have any idea. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons or covering armor or something. Shagor means girdle or loin covering or belt or armor. So that was their attempt to cover themselves from their fall. But before the chapter ends, God teaches them more correctly. Adam also to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? Why did he do that? Because he was teaching them that only by the shedding of innocent blood would they be covered. And while that has a practical aspect that we grab immediately, there's a Levitical aspect there that the shedding of innocent blood will be required to free them from the predicament that they're in. So the central theme, the Old Testament is the account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a man produced by that nation. The Creator became a man and dwelt among us, and His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us, and He's alive today. And the most exalted privilege we can get is to know Him. And that's what the Bible really is all about. So the scarlet thread begins from the seed of the woman to the call of Abraham, the tribe of Jew, the dynasty of David, finally the virgin birth in Bethlehem, and we'll go to another tree in another garden when Jesus Christ pays for the predicament that we've got ourselves in. So next time we'll move forward and go to the flood and all those events. We'll find that there's another increase in entropy, a decrease in order, a lot more than just a lot of water. And we'll deal with the Cain and Abel genealogy of Noah, the flood of Noah, and the Tower of Babel in the next session, finishing unit one, which some people would call prehistory. The second unit would be the rest of the book, which deals with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. See you there. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.